Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to worship with you, um, even if I stand in the back, because we don't have very many seats. But that is, that is great for, with me. Well, it was the church father, Augustine, the Western church father, who said that our negative emotions are due to and show us where we have an incomplete or insufficient view of God. Augustine was saying that things like jealousy, anxiety, distress, uh, that these that these things are, he likened them to smoke that rises from the altars of the idols, or the altars that we've erected to our false gods. In other words, if you want to know where you have a distorted view of God and where your view of God needs to be reshaped, look at these negative emotions. So for instance, if you, are you harsh and judgmental with others? Well, it means probably that you have not experienced God as gracious, truly gracious. Are you uh, never uneasy with this culture that surrounds you? Well, then you probably haven't experienced God as transcendent. Are you, uh, are you, do you suffer from an inordinate and debilitating anxiety? Well, it could be that Your God is not the good, wise, loving, sovereign, caring God of the Scriptures. Could it be that maybe one of the reasons that you walk around with the sense of condemnation weighing on you all the time, shame and guilt, is because you don't believe that God is either loving enough to save you or powerful enough to make it happen? Do you find yourselves arguing about theology all the time but never telling people about Jesus? Or never talking about your own sin personally and how he has saved you? Could it be then that your Jesus is more of a professor than a savior? Are you jealous of others and what they have and constantly thinking this is not fair and why? Well, could it be that your God is not all good and all sufficient? See, where has your picture of God been distorted? And where do you need your picture of God reshaped? We've been in a series on the book of Isaiah. And in this series, we, I've had one goal, and that is that we would let the book of Isaiah reshape and reconfigure our picture of God. That we would see God for who he really is. Who he ultimately is. And so that's what we're going to continue to do this morning with Isaiah 48. Let me pray for us. God, it's a difficult task rightly handling your word. And applying your truth. It's a task for which I am altogether insufficient. 
And so we pray, Lord, that you would attend your word by your spirit. That it would go out not only through me, but in spite of me, and that you would reap a great harvest. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nicholas Copernicus grew up believing what everyone had believed, that the earth was the center of the universe. He was an astronomer, actually. That wasn't his uh, first um, profession. He was... uh, Uh, I don't know what he was. I think he was a doctor or something. But he was an astronomer by hobby. And uh, and he, when he looked at the stars, he thought what everyone else thought. He thought that the earth stands at the center of the universe and everything else revolves around it. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems pretty apparent, right? You look up at night and you see uh, the moon and the sun and uh, the rest of the stars, and they all seem to go over the, you in an orderly fashion. Except there were some data points that Copernicus noticed that didn't seem to line up with that. And so he dared to ask this question, like a kind of crazy question. What if the earth isn't the center of our solar system? What if it isn't the center of the universe? What, what if something else is? And so he went on this thought experiment, and he developed his thought experiment, and then he sent it off to a publisher, and he had it published. The publisher accepted it for some reason and decided to publish it, because even back in, then, I think they want things that'll sell, right? And you put something out there that's a little risque, a little strange, and people will buy it. And they did. They bought it and they rejected it. They thought that it was complete nonsense. And then Copernicus died shortly after. He died with the world thinking that his idea was completely nonsense. But a few of his students, they said, I think our professor's on to something. And so they decided to continue to pursue this line of research. And they published books on it. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, It seemed like in an instant, the whole scientific community, the world, switched their perspective. We call it a uh, a Copernicum revolution because, because it was a paradigm shift of such magnitude that after that date, it was unfathomable to think of the world as the center of the universe. Unless, of course, maybe you're flat earther, I don't know what they think but you can talk to me after. I would be fascinated. I think that the church needs a similar revolution. I find myself needing often a similar revolution. I find myself needing a Copernicum revolution of the soul. Because... From very early on, I see the universe with me at the center of it. I mean, I'm told that babies want, you know, have you ever noticed that when two babies are in a room and one starts crying, the other starts crying? I'm told that that's because they can't distinguish between their own pain and someone else's and their own experiences and someone else's. But it's not just babies that have a problem with that. I I remember one day, I'm getting the details, but I know it was close to my birthday. 
And I know it was a special birthday. And I remember uh, Pam, my wife, saying to me, hey, I need you to be at this place at this time. And I was like, okay, I'll be at this place at this time. And then I was like, I know what's coming. So I'm getting excited. And I'm gearing up, you know. Come home early. This has happened. I'm getting so excited because I love surprise parties. And I'm anticipating my big surprise party. And then I get home, and she's got some chore for me to do. And I'm like, I, th- I thought it was a surpri- surprise party. Oh, oh. She was like, honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I really need you to put the luggage in the attic, you know? And we, maybe it's just me. It's not just me. We view the world from a perspective where we are at the center. If you ask people what's the meaning and purpose of life, most people will say the purpose of life is my own happiness, personal happiness, and self-fulfillment. And even if we don't say that, we live like that. And we think that our marriage is for our own personal happiness and self-fulfillment. We think that our friends are for our own personal happiness and self-fulfillment. We think that our work is for our own personal happiness and self-fulfillment. We even think that Jesus, the church, and religion is there for our own personal happiness and self-fulfillment. It's why most people, when they come into the church, they come in asking this question. Will this work for me? Is it going to give me, transform my mucky Mondays? Is it going to help me so that my kids become acclimated uh, contributors to society? Uh, Is this going to help me get over these bad habits? Is this going to relieve me of the stress in my life? What is it going to do for me? Is it going to work? And it's also why many people don't find Jesus very attractive because they say, you know what, I've got yoga and I've got surfing and, uh, and I've got my CrossFit group and because of that, I'm good. I'm glad that the church works for you. I've got these things for me. Whatever we can do to manage our emotions and get by. I understand it. And it's not just people who are kind of investigating Christianity and coming into the church that are asking those questions. It's also, it's also people within the church. We have this mentality. It's why, it's why we tend to think of, of God as a supernatural butler who is there to, to help us on our way to self-fulfillment. And the church is a purveyor of goods and services that is there to, to, provide us on a, uh, to provide for us on a path of self-actualization. And so, when we come across ethical issues, we say, well, here's the bottom baseline that I know. I know that God wants my happiness above all else. And because I know that God wants my happiness above all else as I defined it, therefore, X, he doesn't want me to be in this marriage because it's not making me happy. He doesn't want me to be in this job because it's not making me happy. 
he doesn't want me to do X, Y, or Z because it's not making me happy. Because we have our baseline. We know what's true. And that is that our happiness is ultimate. Or it's also why we, we tend to take the church as a grab bag of things. So we say, well, you know, I'm just not really into that corporate worship thing because I don't find that helps me out. But, but small group is great, and I like to go here for this thing, and I use this for this because, you know, I'm going to mix and match my own cable package to make sure that I'm fulfilled and happy. And that's how we view church. And I get it. But here's my question. I'm going to dare to ask this question. What if we're not at the center of the universe? And what if our happiness is not our ultimate goal or purpose? And what if that's not even God's ultimate goal or purpose for him or for us? You see, there are these constellations that keep flying overhead in this text. And they just don't seem to match the paradigm that I have and that I grow up with and that I kind of think about and how I view the world. Look at the constellations in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 48. For my name's sake I defer my anger. This is God speaking. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you but not a silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Why does God defer his anger? And why is he long-suffering with Israel? For his own name's sake, verse 9. Why does God refine Israel? For my own sake, verse 11. Why is God acting and doing things for the sake of his name that it might not be profaned and that his glory, that he might get all the glory? Now that just doesn't really fit my me-centered view of the universe. There's something that's off. And I find that this is actually a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Why did God create the earth? Ever ask that question? Why did God create the earth? The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. And why did God choose to reveal his salvation to and through Israel? God saved them for his own namesake to make his mighty power known, Psalm 106.8. And why did God choose you and me to be holy and blameless in his sight? Why did he choose to sanctify us? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Now let's be honest. That is confusing. Like God does all things for the praise of his glorious grace. God does all things for his own glory. God's purpose in this world is, is to promote his, his glory. When C.S. Lewis started reading the Psalms as an atheist, an atheist turned apologist, he said he read the Psalms and he read over and over again God saying, 
Praise me, praise me, praise me. Because he's like, if this is God's word, and they keep saying, praise God, then he's basically saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And Lewis said, it sounded like a vain old woman reaching for compliments. Is God a vain old woman reaching for compliments? And it's not just C.S. Lewis. Brad Pitt, for those of you who, you know, have a little higher taste in culture, Brad Pitt actually left his religious upbringing in Christianity. And here's what he said. He said, I learned in Christianity that you have to say God is everything in order to get anything from him. You have to say God is everything to get eternal life. And that just seemed like an ego trip to me. Is God on an ego trip? Is God envious? Does he have an envy problem? He says in verse 11, my glory I will not give to another. In other words, he's saying, I will not share the stage with anyone. I will not share praise with anyone. I will not give anybody else credit. I am taking all the credit. Oprah, I was talking to her the other day. She's my neighbor. I wasn't. I'm kidding. For those of you who didn't laugh the first time, you can now laugh. And the rest of you can laugh because I tell bad jokes. So, Oprah said, I just, I just can't get over this idea of a jealous God. It just doesn't seem right. That's wrong. And yet, Exodus 34, verse 14 says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. What do we do with this jealous God who is saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, and does all things for his own glory? I mean, if you saw a person doing that, you would call them a narcissist, and that would not be good. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? You know, there's this clip where Joshua Bell, the uh, famous violinist, his world class, he's sitting in a subway, and he's in the bottom of a subway in New York, and he's playing the violin. And people are just kind of walking by and they're hustled and bustled to work and everybody's walking by and he's playing. Right, people pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go see Joshua Bell play. And he's just sitting in the bottom of the subway playing and people are going by, paying nonchalantly, not paying any attention to him, going to work. And as you watch this and you know what's happening, you watch it and there's something that like, I start getting anxious. And I start getting anxious because I'm like, what are these people doing? They're squandering this opportunity. They're not recognizing the beauty that's before them. And there's something about that, isn't it? We call things praiseworthy because we think that they're worthy of praise, that there's something intrinsic in the object that makes it actually befitting to praise it. It kind of calls out for it, and there's like an injustice if it's not praised. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's for those of you who are a little higher culture now, uh, it's like when I was at this concert and all these guys around me were drinking Bud Light and this guy was like a, he was a, he was a representative for a craft brewery and he took all their beers and he threw them away and he gave them craft beer and he's like, I cannot sit here and watch you drink that. For the high culture folks. You know, there's something about it where you just feel like it's, it's a waste because there's something about, about beauty and significance and value 
that should be acknowledged and respected that's fitting. Well, what's the most valuable thing? What's the most valuable being? What's the most valuable in all the universe? What's the most significant thing? What's the most weighty thing? What is befitting praise? God. And you see, if God and his glory are what we should aim our lives after, then why would it be wrong for God to aim his life after that? You see, the reason why it's wrong for you and me to be all about ourselves is because we're not God. We're not the most praiseworthy thing in the universe, but he is. And so it makes sense that he would be about his own praise. So what if God didn't create us and redeem us for our own happiness? What if he created us and redeemed us primarily for his pleasure? His happiness, his glory. We say God has a wonderful plan for your life, but what if God has a wonderful plan and your life happens to be a part of it? What if... What if all things begin and end with God? Romans 11, it was read earlier, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. See, you will never understand the purpose of your life unless you see that the purpose of your life and all things is for God's glory. Who made you? You can answer. Who made you? What else did God make? All things. And why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Our kids could teach us this one. You will never understand the purpose of your life unless you understand that you and all things are made for God's glory. That hell exists to display the glory of his perfections, and that Jesus went to hell on our behalf in order to display the glory and depth of his mercy, that he chooses weak and fallible human beings like me and you to display the glory of his grace and his power, that, that human history is so orchestrated so that its ultimate conclusion will redound to the glory of his grace and that one day he will wipe away every tear because that too will bring him glory. That all things are for the glory of God and if God's goal is for his own glory then that should be our goal too. But that is demanding. To glorify something is to attribute to it significance, weight, to acknowledge it and to esteem it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, okay, got that down, or whatever you do. See, what this means is you can't push Jesus to the margins of your life. He can't be a hobby. It can't be one amongst many things that you pursue. It has to be everything that you pursue. And the primary question that we need to be asking is not will this make me happy, but how can I glorify God through this? 
You see, you cannot place the sun's glory into the orbit of your life. Your life must be placed into the orbit of the sun's glory. And the problem with Israel in this passage is that they were trying to do just that. They were trying to place God's glory in the orbit of their life as one amongst many things that they pursue. Look at the very beginning of the passage, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel. Isaiah is pointing out how the people of Israel here, A, are called by God's name. The name Israel means to wrestle with God. The name Judah means praise God. And even though they are called by his name and they want to call God by his name and they want to claim his holy city and they love that status at the same time, they don't live as, as if that is everything. Because in verse 5, they want to attribute anything and everything to the idols that they make. And God wants them to know. God wants them to know that God is concerned that they attribute everything to him. And so he takes measures to do that. He he predicts things so that they can't say, my idol did this, verses 3 and 4. He speaks things before they come about so that they can't say, we did it and our idol did it, but they have to say, God did it. And, and he even takes them through suffering for the sake of his glory. Look at verse 10. Behold, I have refined you but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. God takes Israel through the furnace of affliction as a refinery so that they might see that he is enough. And the idols are not. Martin Luther got this. Martin Luther said, I credit the devil, the pope, and all my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of the word. It's through the devil's raging that they have turned me into a fairly good preacher, driving me into the gospel into the depths I would never have reached without their affliction. I, was, I, I came back yesterday, last night, a few of us did, from, um, from San Jose, and we were at uh, Jameson's Stockhouse's memorial service up there. Some of you may not know this. Um, you had to get close to Jameson to know it, but he suffered from debilitating back pain uh, from when he was in high school. And he had, had summers where he was just out, completely out. And he was always on medication for it. He didn't ever talk about it because that's the kind of guy he was. I think the reason he didn't ever talk about it was, and one of the reasons is that his brother got up and he said, you know, Jameson's faith completely changed that summer when his back started going out and he started going through the debilitating back pain because then he found that God was sufficient in all in all. And he said that's what actually made him the person that he was to enable him to endure this trial of cancer and to endure it in a way that continued to remain steadfast and faithful and never doubt God's goodness and love in his life. In other words, it was through the affliction that he had endured 
that God brought him to a place where he realized that, that there are lots of good gifts in the world, but God is the greatest, and God is sufficient. God is taking Israel through this trial that they might know that he is sufficient. You know, God tries us for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's consequences of our sin. But we can always learn through them that God is sufficient. See, some of you, you're doing this Christianity thing and you're saying it doesn't, it doesn't work. And I guess what I want to ask is, have you tried it? I'm asking myself that. Have I tried it in those places where I say it doesn't work? But because here's the thing about Christianity. Uh, biblical Christianity has God at the center. And so if I try Christianity with me at the center, then it's a distorted form of Christianity, and I'm not getting the true version of Christianity because I'm not letting Christianity deal, Jesus deal, with my biggest problem, self-centeredness. As long as I try to put Jesus on the margins and remain in the center, I'm actually not letting him address the biggest problem that he needs to address. And so, yes, that version of Christianity does not work. Dallas Willard wrote once, how, how do we present the radical message of Christ in a church that has catered to the religious demands of the nominally committed if we have gathered people into congregations by appeasing their appetites and desires, how can we help them deal with the fact that their problems in life are primarily caused by living to get what they want? But what Willard's saying is he's, he's saying, if we basically say, come to Jesus to get what you want, then how can we turn around and say, actually, that's one of your biggest problems, and that's what Jesus is here to deal with. You're trying to get what you want, your self-centered life. This is consequently why Christianity makes a horrible hobby. It makes a horrible hobby. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, once said, the most miserable person in the world is the half-committed Christian. Just enough into God to be miserable in the world, and just enough into the world to be miserable in God. Now, when we have this... This version of Christianity with us in the center, when we try to keep ourselves at the center of all things and our happiness and the pursuit of it, what ends up happening is we get a distorted version of Christianity, but that version of Christianity is not only distorted, it is unbearable. Listen, it's a good thing that the earth is not the center of the solar system because it does not have the gravitas to hold all the other planets in place. And you and I do not have the gravitas to secure ourselves or all the other planets or all the other things in our lives in place at the center. We need God at the center, and it is the only way, the only way that we can feel safe and secure. And that's why this idea that God seeks his own glory is actually really good news. It's good news because it gives your life meaning. We are on a quest for meaning and trying to create meaning on our own. The word glory means weight or significance. 
God's kavod, his heaviness. When you live for the glory of God and when all things are the glory of God, then you realize that actually your life has weight and significance because it is attached to his weight and his significance. And and even your suffering has significance. Remember verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. God, we go through suffering for a number of reasons, but... But remember the book of Job. Remember the whole way that it's set up. The book of Job is an amazing book. The very beginning, uh, Satan, Satan, the accuser, the prosecutor, comes to God and says, God, uh, all these people, the reason that they love you is because they're self-interested. It's because of what they get from you. They don't really love you for you. They just love you for them, for what you can give them. And God says, okay, consider my servant Job. Take everything from him. And Job goes through this amazing suffering. That's amazing suffering. And at the end of it, um, he comes to a place where he experiences the greatness of God and he realizes that this great God is enough. But he never finds out why he was suffering. But you and I know That the reason that he was suffering was so that God can display his glory to Satan and all the angelic powers to say, I am enough. One of the reasons that you may be suffering and may be enduring affliction is so that, that God can display his glory and show to the host of heaven, that he is enough. That he is enough for you. And so that you can display to others that he is enough. That he is enough. That you will not curse God and die. That though he slay you, yet you will trust him because he is enough. And it's in that way that even in our suffering, we can show people how we can have joy in the midst of very trying circumstances and that our joy and happiness are not actually contingent upon those circumstances because, because God who is outside those circumstances is enough. And don't you want that joy that's not contingent upon your circumstances? Don't you want that joy that's not contingent upon whether or not your pursuit of happiness hit a dead end or someone else came in and erupted it This is good news because because God's glory and your good are inextricably linked. Notice how he says at the very end, For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is saving Israel because he says, If I don't save Israel, then my name will be profaned. And I don't want my name to be profaned. And I am about my name and I'm about seeking my name. And I won't give my glory to another. But here's the thing that you need to understand. God has so tied his glory to his people's good that he will so surely bring about one that he will bring about the other. Only a few chapters earlier, he calls Israel, chapter 46, his glory. And he puts his name on them in benediction. And he put his name on you, Christian, in baptism. 
You were baptized into his name, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, him seeking his name is actually him seeking your good. And you can trust him and you can be faithful and know that he will be faithful because yes, God has a wonderful plan and you are bound up with it. And this is actually what fills your life with joy. Lewis later on figured out he solved his own problem. He said, I've never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Uh, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, etc. I mean, people are all the time praising things. Look at this, look at this. You wouldn't believe this. Lewis then says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because... The praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Have you ever been to like a wonderful concert by yourself? Have you ever seen a beautiful sunset by yourself? Have you ever had that moment in those times where you look to the left and look to the right for someone to say, hey, look at this, and they weren't there? And you were robbed of something? See, when we praise and when we call others to praise, that is actually the expression of the enjoyment of it. I mean, the reason we go around saying, you know, this cheese is awesome or uh, I love this team or did you see that? The other person saw it if they're sitting right next to you. The reason why you say, did you see that is because you're wanting to praise it because your joy is not fully expressed until you can say, did you see that? It was amazing. See, you know this. When have you felt exhilaration and happiness and joy in your life? Let me ask, was it after you sat in like a counseling session for an hour navel gazing? Did you come out of that session skipping and jumping and being like, this is amazing life? Or was it when you were caught up in something that was gloriously bigger than yourself? Now, it's important to, to reflect on our lives. And the counseling chair is not, uh, is not a bad place to be in the investigation of what's going on inside of us. But that is not going to bring you what you ultimately seek. See, here's the irony. When we seek our own happiness, we don't get it. When we seek God's glory, we get happiness thrown in. Listen, there are aspects of my life where I am miserable. And I hate it for me. And there are aspects of your life where you are miserable. And I hate it for you. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I want us, together, to have a Copernicum revolution of the soul so that we might find delight in that thing which is most delightful in the whole world. 
See, God's call to value him is a call to praise him. And his call to praise him is a call to enjoy him. And his call to enjoy him is a call to enjoy the most satisfying, valuable thing in the universe. He does not want us to settle for anything less. And so his command that you praise him and to live for him and to glorify him in all things is his unrelenting pursuit of your joy and your personal fulfillment. So do you want to experience that joy? Do you want to experience that self-fulfillment? Well, the one thing that we need most is a Copernicum revolution of the soul where everything about our being is excited and animated and living for the glory of God. And we learn it here in worship. So let's continue to worship God together. Amen.